Welcome everyone to the Living Parables Podcast, where we uncover spiritual truth and lessons God has given us through His Word and our own life stories. I am Nate, your host. To all listeners tuning in the show, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I appreciate each and every single one of you. And now let us begin. I'd like to welcome you back to a brand new week, brand new episode. I hope it's treating you well so far. First and foremost, I want to say that um, I appreciate all of the um, responses to our first couple episodes. And I just want to start off by saying that I apologize for not being um, consistent the last couple weeks. Uh, there's been uh, family visiting and mostly uh, there is a really terrible cold and flu that is going around our area that literally has hit everybody I know. And uh, so we're back on the, uh, the on the right track here. So um, praise God for that. So I hope you've been doing well so far. And it's been a while since I did my last episode, but I want to let you know that the first ever episode that we did when we came back, I was talking about preaching and by the grace of God, it went really well. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that and I uh, appreciate your prayers and I will, God willing, soon be uh, making that available to everybody. Uh, some of you that have been listening since the beginning will have uh, a quite a bit of knowledge on that exact same subject, although we added a little bit more meat to it. So it was uh, it was really good. I'm um, just was really really pleased and uh, happy with that. So um, I give God the glory for all that. But today, we are talking about another one of those subjects that is very important to the life of a Christian, and that is learning to be content. The worldly definition of contentment is a state of happiness or satisfaction. The biblical definition means to properly be self-sufficient, content in the sense of being satisfied because living in God's content or his fullness. This inward sufficiency is as valid in low times with, you know, like suffering as in high times, like temporal prosperity. So the spirit-filled Christian, the spirit-led Christian, the spirit-controlled Christian is having all that we need within through the indwelling of Christ. The self-sufficiency within occurs only in Philippians 4.11, where it refers to a positive self-sufficiency that comes through the indwelling power of Christ. See, that's, that's the difference. A lot of people want to be self-sufficient in this world, but again, it all comes from Christ. The world says, I am content because I have made my peace. I have done these things. Therefore, 
Look at what I have done. The Christian always points back to Christ. But this uh, self-sufficiency that we're talking about, this spiritual self-sufficiency is talking about uh, it's entirely God-produced. It indicates independence from any need of help. But obviously, as you know, that's not really the case with us because we are constantly in need of a Savior. But I'll tell you, this world is a breeding ground for discontentment. I'm going to say that one more time. This world is a breeding ground for discontentment. Worldly achievements, nice cars, biggest house, best jobs, highest promotions, money, second homes, hobbies, and I would even also throw in their hobbies that generate the oohs and the ahs of people around you to get their envy. If you can achieve all those things, then you'll be happy. We live in a 24-7, 365 days a year society that always is on the go. There's always something we must be doing, and rest leaves us only with thoughts of not getting things done. I'm not saying that we aren't to be working hard and, and doing the best job we possibly can at whatever it is we're doing. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that we aren't to be working uh, to the best of our abilities. I'm not saying none of those things. But we're to be working for the Lord with all of our hearts. The main issue comes from when we obsessively obsess over acquiring wealth, possessions, or any other materialistic thing that fails to glorify God. Let's look at some reasons now on why people become discontent. Number one is that we take our eyes off of Christ. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 14, verses 28 through 31. And it says, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? So we take our eyes off of Christ. You know, and this story is powerful for many, many reasons. As much as Peter put his foot in his mouth, as much as Peter was a little bit impulsive, his love for Christ superseded all of those things. And yes, he failed and fell short, for sure. But I think most of us can relate to Peter more than we can Paul. Um, and it, it's a beautiful thing. Because Peter was the one that said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come on the water. And you said, Come on. So Peter obeyed him. And in another passage of Scripture, when it's talking about this exact same story, what happens is he actually started walking on the water. And don't get me wrong, this isn't because Peter is so holy and righteous. 
or he he has some form of deity. No, his power came from Christ. Christ allowed that to happen through faith. So his eyes were completely fixated on, on Christ and Christ alone until the world around him started to shake, started to, the wind started to blow. The waters became very dangerous. So he became frightened. And what is what does Jesus say? What does God say? What does the Holy Spirit say about being frightened? Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Don't fear. And that's what we do. When everything is going right, we have great faith because the boat's not rocking. The seas aren't swelling up. The wind isn't blowing. But the minute those things start up, we start looking left and right and up and down and we start panicking and getting all just shook. Then we start to sink. And then we do what is appropriate. We reach out to Christ and say, please, Lord, save me. And he grabs your hand, pulls you up out of that water and says, why did you doubt? I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. And I think that's part of the world. Part of the world is we've been burnt by so many people so many times that it's hard to it's hard to trust. But Jesus has never given us a reason to doubt. He's never given us a reason to doubt. So don't doubt him. But that's what we do. The biggest reason why we are discontent is we take our eyes off of Christ. The second reason is because we envy and covet. I'm going to take it to a few passages of scriptures here. Proverbs 23:17 says, "Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always." So, it's saying live in the and that, that always is all the day. All the day. Now, we're not talking about a fear of God where he's just going to smash us every time we do something wrong. It's a reverent fear. I remember when I was a young man and even still today, but I remember when I was a young man and a lot of times I was tempted to do things that were wrong. And because Christ was dominating my conscience and I remember the teachings of my father and he told me not to do certain things. And if I were tempted to do those things, I'll be really honest with you right now. It was hard to pass up those things because some of them were enticing. They sounded great. But the fear of my father, the respect, the, the you know almost the, the reverence I had and still have for him prevented me from going into things that were dangerous. And as I got older, I trusted in that a lot more. So I would leave parties when drinking and, you know, I'm not, I don't, drugs weren't ever really involved, but drinking was happening and um, inappropriate dancing was going on. And all I was wanting to do was play video games. <laughs> you know, um, it wasn't popular to leave that. But I knew that I had the fear of my father in my heart and I knew that it was wrong. He brought me up not going that way because. You know, I'm going to have him on the show here, God willing, soon. 
he'd be the first to tell you I he was the king of parties but he taught me that that stuff is empty so when we en envy sinners we don't live in the fear of the lord if if we envy sinners that means we want to partake in them we want to be with them we want to en engage in the activities that are actually storing up wrath for themselves and we compromise the word of God. We compromise our relationship with him. But, but God is easily saying here, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord. That's where we got to live. That's not where we vacation. It's not where we take a little a mini trip, a weekend trip. We live in that. We live in that fear of the Lord because everything that we do, every sin that we commit is grieving to the Holy Spirit. And we will do a study on this, God willing, soon. But to grieve means to cause deep distress or pain, as in pain of childbirth. So, men, we don't know anything about childbirth. We're basically cheerleaders on the side when our wives are going through the absolute worst of pain. But um, a woman will tell you that is excruciating pain. And that's what happens when we sin against the Holy Spirit. So... The next time you want to engage in sin, you might want to consider that before you uh, go do that. So we envy and covet. So let's look at Proverbs 14.30. It says, A tranquil heart is a life to the body, but, a pa but passion, envy, covetousness is rottenness to the bones. When we envy and covet, it's rottenness to the bones. And I'm not sure about you, but I want my bones to stay nice and healthy. I want them. I want them to uh, be strong for as long as humanly possible. Because could you imagine if you know you walked and all of a sudden your just legs broke, or you're doing something with your arms and your arm just broke? I mean, that'd be awful. That's what that's what the sin of envy and covetousness does. It rottens the bones. And a couple of great examples of that. Uh, we're not going to go too deep into it, but Genesis 4, 3 through 8, Cain, when he murdered his brother Abel, it was out of envy. It was out of envy. Even Saul in one at first Samuel 18, 7 through 9. You know, the people were singing the praises of David. You know, Saul killed, you know, thousands of of enemy soldiers. But David killed 10,000, and that just sunk into his heart and started making him extremely bitter and angry. So he wasn't, he wasn't a godly man anymore. He was giving over to his sin. So reason number one why we become discontent is we take our eyes off of Christ. And second, we envy and covet. But three, we love the world more than God. We can't let it go, or we want to go back into it. So let's look at James 4.4. 4. It says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God or hatred towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? 
No, it doesn't. If you love the world more than God, you hate him and you are his enemy. And it's funny because a lot of people say, oh, God's just this mean God and he's looking to smash people. And he's just, how, how can he send people to hell, blah, 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 blah. But listen, the end of verse 4 says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, that's, that's a you choice. That's a me choice. And listen to the end here. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God doesn't want to be our enemy. But he does have to inflict judgment upon that which is sinful. The wages of sin is death. It must occur. There is another part of wrath of God. It's not just the final wrath of God. But there's wrath of God for the betrayal of God's law and his moral law. Those things happen. And when you love the world, and and what are the things of the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's 1 John 2, 16. And that does not come from the Father. And, And that's what we do. And one of the biggest and best examples of loving the world more than God was Lot's wife. And you can read about that in Genesis 19, 23 through 26, or you can read that in Luke 17, 32 through 33. And what did Lot's wife do? She loved Sodom and Gomorrah. She did not want to leave. They were basically forced to leave. Like if you don't leave now, the judgment and wrath of God is coming upon this city you are going to be swept up in with it. So you need to go. As they were going, they were commanded to not look back. Don't look back. Don't look back. Don't look back. Don't look upon the sin that you left. Don't look upon the sin, the, the sin that you were rescued from and have a desire to go back to it. And what did she do? She turned right around and poof. Pillar of salt. She was turned to a pillar of salt. That is a warning for us because when we come to Christ, we don't look left, we don't look right, we certainly don't look behind, we never look back because. What we are leaving behind cannot even remotely compare to the glory that is in Christ, to the glory that is Christ, to the magnificence of Christ, the the beauty of Christ, uh, and what he offers and what he does to the heart and to the soul. But yet we go back to it. We pull a Peter. You know, we we pull uh, Lot's wife. I'm going to use this other example. Demas. Many of you don't know Demas. And I'm going to take you to Colossians 4.14 real quick. It's not an earth-shattering verse, but it's it's the beginning of the downfall before it even happens. So Colossians 4.14, and this is 
talking about the end of the book of Colossians, where Paul is writing to them, and he says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Now, why is that an important verse? It's not, but if you go to 2 Timothy 4.10, you're going to see very clearly. It says, For Demas, having loved the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, Cretans, has gone to Galatia, Titus, to Dalmatia. Now, that first part is I want you to focus on. For Demas, having loved the present world, has deserted me. And I will just tell you this. The reality that Demas in his choice of abandoning Paul at his greatest hour of need. You have to understand in 2 Timothy, this is the tail end of Paul's life on this earth. He has ran the race. He has fought the good fight. But his heart, I think, towards the end of his ministry and the end of his life was pretty bruised and battered. A lot of people were using his name in vain, um, saying that he was a false teacher. The reason why he was in prison is because he did this, this, and that. So it it was bringing down his uh, message and his authority as an apostle. And more importantly, that he was most concerned about was bringing down the name of Christ. And he just had brother after brother just abandoning him at his most hour of need. I mean, this is, Paul's about ready to face execution here, Okay. And Demas, I don't know, I, I, I'm not going to speculate as, as in to what exactly it was. But he loved the world more than God. Because I'm never going to put Paul in, in any category with Christ. But, boy, we, we can sympathize with Paul, can't we? If you've been in the faith long enough... You have had people in your life that have walked away. I've heard many, many stories about this. And people that were very close to you at one point and now are, are gone, they, they get very uncomfortable with your new faith or finding out that you have the faith because it convicts them, because the conscience bear, bears witness to the law of God written in our hearts. And it's easy to love the world rather than God. It takes no it takes no discipline, no self-control to love the world. Because the world just says, do what you want. Live how you want. Do, do what you please. Sleep with who you want. Take what you take what you want. Step on people's backs to get to where you need to go. Take advantage of people. Get as much money and wealth as possible. And even people today are saying that, you know, um, Marriage isn't so much a monogamous thing that it's it, there's no virtue in being uh, being monogamous. That you know, sleeping with multiple people while you're married and letting your partner sleep with other people that's 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 being a good wife. That's being a good husband. Um, I pause here because it just 
literally breaks my heart. And if there's anything that gets me down more than anything else is the fact that people that think that in that their sinfulness is going to get them everything that they have ever wanted or desired. And the truth is only those things are found in Christ. So I'm reflecting, and these are not my notes right now, but the things that I see and the things that I hear, sin is not hiding. Sin is not in a closet somewhere. It's not in the shadows anymore. It's it's out. It's loud and it's proud and it's and the world has gravitated towards sin, its desires, its lusts, its passions that unfortunately store up wrath for themselves. And I know I've said that twice, but that's Romans chapter two, verse five, but we have to be in constant battle against sin. So we have all the reasons why people are discontent, but I'm going to give you some reasons to be content in Christ because for number one, Christ is enough. He is enough. So I want to take you to Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12. And many of you uh, will know this one. And it's one of my favorite verses. It says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. My name can't save you. Your parents' name can't save you. Your parents' faith can't save you. You growing up in a Christian household doesn't save you. You going to church every week doesn't save you. Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone. That's what saves you. You coming to the realization that there is nothing within myself There's nothing externally, there's nothing internally that can save you on your own merits. It's that unmerited favor. It's the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we know 2 Corinthians 5.21. I mean, I have this on shirts, but this one's so powerful. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. that, That is the literal gospel in one verse. And it's powerful because you could say, well, God so loved the world that gave his one and only son that whoever believes him shall have everlasting life. They won't perish, they'll have everlasting life. That that could be the gospel as well. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 leaves, leaves no room for error. God made Christ sin for us so that we can become righteousness in him. To God. That's powerful. That's the only way we stand righteous before a righteous and holy God. It's the only way. So I'm going to take you to one more because, and I, I just said this, but this has actually become one of my favorite verses as well. Because, I mean, all the Bible talks about Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. But when it's talking about him specifically, and it leaves no room for like, well, we have to kind of dig into this a little bit. 
uh, that those are the ones I enjoy. So listen to 1 Corinthians one thirty. But by his doing, and God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, here's a list, four things, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. I mean, that is so incredibly powerful. And I'm going to read verse 31 as well. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. My boast is in the Lord. But Christ is enough. And reason number two to be content in Christ, because his word is enough. Matthew 4, 4 says, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every mouth or by the, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. John 17, 17, we know that one pretty well. But Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is God-breathed. Matthew 24.35, His words will never pass away. So his word is enough for us. But we, but we, have, to, we have to understand that. We have to believe that. I do want to take you to Colossians here. As you know, I have a, a soft spot for Colossians. But I want to take you to chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. I want you to just listen to this one. It says, For this reason also, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Remember that wisdom comes from Christ. We just He became wisdom from God from us. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. God's power is enough. That's number three. God's power is enough. Ephesians Chapter 3, 14 through 16 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, here it is, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. God's power is enough. God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of discipline. And you already know where I'm going with this. It's 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Power, love, and discipline. Discipline. And people, get they fall in love with the power. They fall in love with the love part. Although most of the world has their idea of love completely off. But the discipline part is what we don't want to talk about. And I want to talk about that. It takes discipline to be content. And it says of sound judgment. Us choosing Christ over the world leads to contentment. I mean, we can just, we can just end this here and walk away. But I'm going to tell you something. Contentment doesn't come naturally. Discontentment does. 
And one thing that isn't popular amongst people is that contentment isn't a quick and easy thing to get. You can't order on Amazon with and get it within two shipping days. So we're going to look at what Paul says that he that he learned in and through the Holy Spirit. So I do want to take us to the book of Philippians. And as we're going through Philippians, we're going to be in chapter 4, which a lot of us would be very, very familiar with. 4.13 is probably the... Um, the golden verse that there, if you will, there's a, I mean, there's many great things in the fourth chapter, but I want you to listen to 11 and 12 here. It says, not that I speak from want for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. Paul says that he learned to be content. And the Greek word for learn is mantheno. It means learning key facts through personal experience, often with implication of reflection, coming to realize by looking in the mirror. I'm going to say this to you right now. We learn through personal experience. And we whatever we learn, we if we apply what we learn, that is wisdom. That is wisdom. Now, how do we learn to be content? Well, so how did Paul learn to be content? Well, we're going to look at his life a little bit. As Saul, you know, Philippians 3, 2 through 6. Uh, you can read that in your own time. But before Christ, he had everything. He was a top Pharisee, top teacher. And what came with that? Power, wealth, respect, etc., Going back to Philippians 4.12 here, he says, I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. He, he lived in prosperity. He knew he, 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 was the, he was the guy. He was the guy. People are saying, <laughs> the kids today are saying, he is him. Yeah, he was him. He was, he was the guy. But in any in every circumstance, he has learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. As Saul of the world, he had pleasures of this world. He had everything you could ever want, but he was empty. He was without Christ. Now, I do want you to listen to this as Paul now. And it's it's so interesting that most, not most, but some of the biggest characters of the Bible, you know, Peter, Paul, you know, Peter was Simon, Paul was Saul. He changed their name. And I think that's so, I think that's so cool. Second Corinthians chapter 11, 22 through 28. Now, as Saul, he had everything he could ever want. But listen, as Paul, as Paul now, listen to this. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I'm more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. You can do that, five times 39. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I spent in the deep, in the seas. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, robbers, countrymen, Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, all those dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there are daily pressures on me of concern for all the churches. Most of the world's going to be a Saul. The world loves you. You have health, wealth, and prosperity. But no Christ. No hope. Now, you just heard everything that happened to Paul. But of everything that he used to have, everything they used to have, now everything we just read here in Second Corinthians, that's what he endured for the sake of Christ. But everything that Paul had when he lived in prosperity, let's see what his attitude is in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. Listen to this. But whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish or, in the Greek, dung, so that I may gain Christ. All that, that health, all that wealth, all that prosperity, all that power, all that respect, he considers that crap. I know what you're thinking. Whoa. But it's true. That's what that's in the Greek, that's what rubbish means. It doesn't mean trash, it means poop. I mean, literally, that's what it is. All that's that's all that stuff is compared to Christ. All your all your quote unquote good deeds, all your quote unquote righteousness on your own, all the money in the world, all the power, all any any women, or if you're on the other side of the fence, any men, all those things are a loss. That's the secret of contentment. Getting to that point that the world has nothing to offer you and knowing Jesus Christ, your Lord. The surpassing value. Did you hear that? This is the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is that you? Is that me? Do you value knowing Christ? Do you know him at all? You know a little bit. It's important. It's safe to say that Paul had an extraordinary life, but the hardships and trials he endured were incredibly difficult. As we mentioned earlier, as Saul, he had the world at his fingertips, but was empty. As Paul, the world meant nothing to him any longer. No positions of power, no amount of wealth could ever come close in comparison to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His best statement is, I mean, we've heard many, but Philippians one twenty one, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The people of God were his passion. Serving Christ was his top priority, as should be ours. But Paul started to learn the key facts through his conversion with Christ and through his experiences of life. He mentioned in Philippians 4.12 that he learned the secret. Well, what is the secret? The secret of being content. What What is it? It's found in the very next verse, which I told you is the golden verse. 
because people take that out of context all the time. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Everything. And that's not talking about, you know, uh, prosperity type of things. And it's talking about God's grace is sufficient for us to get us through the things that we go through in this life. When we suffer for the sake of righteousness, when we suffer because of the sake of the gospel, that's it. The, the secret of contentment is found in Christ. All things. Not some things, everything in Christ. So here are some things we can learn from Scripture as we start to close about how to be content. We need to, number one, set and keep our minds on things above. You can read that in Colossians 3, 1 through 2. Number two, we continue to de- deny self and take up our cross daily. Number three, don't worry about your life or be anxious about anything. You can read that in Matthew 6.25 or Philippians 4.6. Number four, understand that God will never leave us nor forsake us. You can read that in Hebrews 13.5-6. Number five, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Number six, trust in God's grace that is sufficient for us. Number seven, learn to be content by sitting at the foot of the cross. Eight, we entrust our souls to our great shepherd. We can learn to be content by what was done on Calvary. We have gone over many things about being content, but nothing truly compares to learning contentment from the foot of the cross. I believe the God who did not spare his own son, but delivered him to die on the cross for me, will surely give me everything I need for this life and the life to come. Amen? The son who endured the agony and suffering of the wrath of God, his father, for the sake of my soul, won't withhold good things from me. Wow. He who shed his blood for my sins will supply me with the spiritual things which ultimately are to bring glory and honor to God. We can rest easy from all life's trials and demands, highs and lows, by understanding and knowing that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. That God's promises to never let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. We always know and trust and rely on that God always provides a way of escape. The way, the way, Jesus Christ. We can rest in contentment in his grace that provides us life through his son. This grace that is sufficient to strengthen us when everything around us is falling apart. The grace that caused God to step down into time. The grace of becoming the creation to rescue us from his holy and righteous wrath. This grace that gives us all that we will ever need because Jesus Christ is enough for every empty soul. Let us forsake the lies of this world and the discontentment that it breeds and pursue the only one who can truly satisfy what our longing hearts crave, and that's Christ himself. Contentment rests in the realization that everything is in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ. And in Romans 11.36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 
So with that being said, I pray that the Lord blesses and keeps you and gives you peace. And remember, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything, 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 everything is in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ. And until next time, God bless you all.